Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. So today on CardioScripts, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Alexandra or Alex Goncharenko. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist in heart failure at Advocate Medical Group, part of the Greater Advocate Aurora Health System. She trained at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy and completed her PharmD degree as a PGY-1 general practice residency and PGY-2 cardiology specialty residency at UIC. She holds pharmacy board certification in pharmacotherapy and cardiology, and her primary role is providing clinical care to heart failure patients with a focus on heart failure med titration and optimization and monitoring, as well as diabetes management in the ambulatory care setting. Thank you so much, Alex, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today on Cardioscripts. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited, and I am a avid fan of your podcast, always listening on my dog walks. So thanks for having me. Well, we're so grateful to have you today to talk about a, a pretty interesting trial, the Emperor Preserve trial. And so we've talked a lot on Cardioscripts about SGLT2 inhibitors in some previous episodes in HEFRAF patients. And you can refer back to those. Uh, we, we talked to Dr. Ted Berry about DAPA-HF and Emperor Reduced. Um, but today we're talking about a little bit of a different heart failure population with Emperor Preserved. And this was presented in August 2021 at the ESC 2021 meeting and subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the purpose of this trial was to assess the efficacy of empagliflozin in patients with heart failure and a preserved ejection fraction. So this was a double-blind, parallel-group, placebo-controlled, multi-center, randomized controlled trial. Patients were included if they were 18 years or older, or NYHA classes 2 through 4, had an ejection fraction of greater than 40%, an NT pro-BNP of 300 or more, or if they also had AFib, 900 or more. And patients were excluded if they had cardiovascular diseases or treatments that could increase the unpredictability of or change in the patient's clinical course independent of heart failure within the past 90 days. And examples of this were MI, cabbage, stroke, or or TIA. Patients were also excluded if they had received a heart transplant or were listed for a heart transplant, had an LVAD, systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury, EGFR of less than 20, or a BMI of 45 or more. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio to empagliflozin 10 milligrams per day, plus usual therapy or placebo. And the primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. The first secondary outcome was occurrence of all adjudicated heart failure hospitalizations, including first and recurrent events. So about 6,000 patients were randomized to either empagliflozin or the placebo group, and the median follow-up time was 26.2 months. Patients were about 72 years of age, about 45% were female, 75% white, 14% Asian, and between 4 to 5% Black. 12% were in North America, 82% were classified as NYHA class 2, and 18% NYHA class 3. The mean ejection fraction was 54%. About 35% of patients had ischemic heart failure and about 65% non-ischemic. About 80% of patients were on a RAS inhibitor, 37% on an MRA, 
86% on a beta blocker. And in a, a separate publication looking at baseline characteristics, 86% were on a diuretic, with 67% of those being a loop diuretic. For the primary outcome, uh, it occurred in 13.8% of patients on empagliflozin and 17.1% of those in the placebo group with a hazard ratio of 0.79 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.69 to 0.90. And this difference was driven by heart failure hospitalization with a hazard ratio of 0.71 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.6 to 0.83. For cardiovascular death, this occurred in 7.3% of those in the EMPA group and 8.2% of those in the placebo group with a hazard ratio of 0.91 and a confidence interval of 0.76 to 1.09. With regards to serious adverse effects, this was reported in 47.9% of those in the EMPA group and 51.6% of those in the placebo group. Discontinuation of treatment occurred in 19.1% of those in the EMPA group and 18.4% of those in the placebo group. Some adverse events to note, hypotension occurred more frequently in those who were in the EMPA group at an incidence of 10.4% versus 8.6%. Symptomatic hypotension was noted to occur at 6.6% of those in the EMPA group and 5.2% of those in the placebo group. UTI was 9.9% in the EMPA group versus 8.1% in the placebo group. And general infections occurred at an incidence of 2.2% in the EMPA group and 0.7% in the placebo group. So that is a brief overview of the Emperor Preserve trial. So Alec, before we even dive into the trial, could you kind of walk us through current HEFPEF therapies that are available? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Although half of all patients with heart failure have HEFPEF, there really have not been any positive trials and therefore no drug therapy options available for HEFPEF the way that we currently have treatment for HEFPEF. I think by now we're all used to that typical intro section when reading these clinical trials for HEFPEF that say something similar like, no therapy has yet been identified to definitively reduce morbidity or mortality in this patient population. And the foundation for the evidence for treatment of HEFPEF is with the same therapies which target the RAS or renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that we have already proven benefit in HEFREF patients. The five large phase three randomized control trials we have to support treatment options for HEFPEF patients come from the CHARM Preserved, PEP CHF trial, iPreserve, TopCat, and the latest Paragon HF trial. Each of these trials enrolled patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction above either 40 or 45 and had a primary outcome of a composite of CV mortality or all-cause mortality and heart failure or CV hospitalization, depending on which trial you're looking at, but ultimately none of these trials have met their primary endpoint. Based on different subgroup or post hoc analyses, again, depending on which trial you're looking at, some benefit was seen with reduction in hospitalizations with candesartan in the CHARM Preserve trial, as well as spironolactone in TopCat, the American data specifically. Um, and lastly, was Secubitril Valsartan and Paragon HF. ARBs and spironolactone, therefore, have a class 
2B recommendation in the current guidelines for risk reduction of hospitalizations in patients with HFPEF. And also, the FDA recently expanded the indication for secubitril valsartan in HFPEF treatment, and it reads specifically to reduce the risk of CV death and hospitalization for heart failure in patients uh, with chronic heart failure. So they eliminated the ejection fraction cutoff. But do make note, the benefit is most clearly evident in patients with the ejection fraction below normal, and clinical judgment should be used. So I think this phrasing of the new indication is a bit generous for Paragon HF and Secubitril Valsartan because it's another trial that didn't meet its primary endpoint, but had a trend towards decreased hospitalizations, particularly in patients with an ejection fraction less than 57. So that's really all we have in our arsenal right now. Of course, in addition to loop diuretics for fluid management for our HFPEF patients. Alex, thanks so much for taking us through the data that we have so far. And that kind of leads us right into Emperor Preserved. So what are your overall thoughts about this trial? Here we have yet another positive trial for SGLT2 inhibitors, which have really taken the cardiology and nephrology worlds by storm as of recent. What's most exciting to me is to finally have a trial that met its primary endpoint for HFPEF patients. This is a group of patients that has desperately needed therapeutic options. Um, with regards to the studied population, I think that the HFPEF patient that most clinicians see in practice was well represented here, specifically older patients with multiple comorbid conditions, NYHA class two to three symptoms, about half were obese, half were women. What a great thing to see a good representation of women who suffer, if not the same amount, but maybe even more in the HFPEF population. There was an underrepresentation of the African-American population. This is important for me personally, at least, because that's the majority of the patients I see here in my practice in Chicago. Baseline treatments are also representative of what I see in practice, which is mostly your RAS inhibitors, beta blockers, and loop diuretics. It's nice to see a population with the most aldosterone antagonist use at baseline compared to other HFPEF trials, although the number does still seem a little bit low. This could be because half of the patients had some sort of CKD at baseline, or it could be just the repetitive evidence here that we have for underutilization of aldosterone antagonists in clinical practice. But overall, these baseline characteristics are just mostly similar to other HFPEF trials that we have so far. Just like many of the other SGLT2 inhibitor trials that we've seen here, um, we see a separation of the curves for the primary endpoint very early, within 90 days or even sooner. The primary outcome had a number needed to treat of just 30, driven by a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations, although it would be great one day to see a treatment that does also reduce cardiovascular mortality. But decreasing heart failure hospitalization is still clinically relevant for this patient population. So just in general, if you look across SGLT2 inhibitor trials, there's been a pretty consistent benefit with regards to renal outcome. But it was interesting to note in this trial, there was a neutral result with regards to renal outcome. And it's important to note this is a, a secondary endpoint. So I will highlight that. What are your thoughts on these findings? And just if you could kind of touch on overall SGLT2 inhibitor impact on renal outcomes. 
Yeah, this in this trial, we did see the decrease in the rate of decline of EGFR, but as you mentioned, it was a neutral result to the hard renal outcomes um, that we care about. SGLT2 inhibitors, even before Emperor Preserved, have proven themselves to prevent worsening renal outcomes in previously published trials like Credence, which was the diabetes patients with CKD, and DAPA CKD, which was CKD patients with or without diabetes. Again, this was the secondary endpoint, and it could be why we're not seeing the over, overt benefit we've seen in other trials. The benefit was seen in the pooled data between emperor reduced and emperor preserved. Perhaps maybe if the trial went on for a longer period of time and was adequately powered for this outcome, then maybe we would see the same benefits as seen in all the other trials. Um, it doesn't take away from my appreciation of SGLT2 inhibitors for their renal protective benefits. When it comes to renal function specifically, I think it is important to mention that in clinical practice, I at least have seen that early EGFR dip, um, similar to what's reported in the Emperor Preserve trial with that early decline in EGFR. It should be expected, it should be planned for, and I think it's important for clinicians to be proactive about adjusting loop diuretics too, if possible, and not to prematurely discontinue an SGLT2 inhibitor thinking the patient's going into some sort of AKI. As seen in the trial, renal function will eventually return to baseline, the EGFR, and ultimately patients will benefit from the renal protection offered by SGLT2 inhibitors in the long term. It's reassuring to see also in this trial that patients with the EGFR down to 20 were included, and there were no true safety signals because of this. Um, in practice, it's also, I think, important to mention that we do expect less glycosuria and less benefit for really the treatment of diabetes from these medications, the lower that the EGFR is at baseline, but we still will have the cardiovascular benefits. So Alex, could we talk more about ejection fraction and HEFPEF as the subgroup analysis indicated, maybe there's greater benefit in patients with a lower ejection fraction when it's greater than 40%. And we, we talked a little bit about this in a previous CardioScripts episode, um, talking about TopCat with Dr. Kathleen Falkenberg back in February of 2020. Um, but could you kind of add your thoughts on how we kind of just lump patients with an EF of greater than 40% together. Yeah, yeah. And just to piggyback off what we just talked about too, it's always good to remember that to be good stewards of critical literature review, we need to remind ourselves that any kind of secondary manipulation of clinical trial data, like subgroup analysis, post hoc reviews, should at the end of the day be considered as hypothesis generating, meaning that we can't make definitive conclusions on cause and effect, but we can speculate on some trends that we see. And with that being said, yeah, it is noteworthy to add that the perceived benefit derived from SGLT2 inhibitors does seem to diminish as the reported ejection fraction uh, increases. I think that there's many reasons this could be. First, we already know that patients who have a reduced ejection fraction are suffering from overactivation of the neurohormonal pathway. With Emperor Preserved, in addition to other HEFPEV trials in the past, we are seeing increasing data to support treatment of heart failure patients with that 
mildly reduced ejection fraction between 41 to 49% with our contemporary HEFREF medications. This group of patients seem to derive benefit from neurohormonal blockers like RNEs, as well as SGLT2 inhibitors like we see in this trial. In the last full heart failure guideline that was published way back in 2013, this patient population was actually referred to as HEFPEF borderline, suggesting that patients with the ejection fraction between 41 to 49 maybe behave more like HEFPEF patients. But perhaps patients who have an EF above our really well-known cutoff of 40% are still actually experiencing some degree of neurohormonal activation and therefore, they may derive benefits from the same agents as we use in patients with the ejection fraction 40% or less. Patients could actually perhaps be on a spectrum of neurohormonal activation. We can't say when does that start and end, but it doesn't seem to be exactly at 40%. Historically, actually, the 40% ejection fraction cutoff wasn't based on any pathophysiology, but it was a way to distinguish patients who were gaining benefit from our traditional neurohormonal blockade versus those who weren't when they were designing clinical trials. And perhaps this is just showing us that it's a weakness to use a parameter like ejection fraction to phenotype our HEFPEF patients. That just because a patient has a measured ejection fraction of 40% or more, doesn't mean that they have normal cardiac hemodynamics like systolic function. This is one of the major difficulties in studying HEFPEF patients is that they have a lot of heterogeneity and hopefully in the future, um, research advancements like cardiac imaging, genetics, biomarkers, we can better stratify patients with an ejection fraction above 40% and therefore be able to identify more precise therapeutic targets for those patients. So I guess now that we've kind of touched on some key points with Emperor Preserved and in light of this data, um, what's your management approach for HEFPEF patients? With this data, my approach will be using patient-specific factors. I really want to reflect the patients that were studied in, the, in these trials. Factors like ejection fraction, biomarkers, as well as past medical history, including their diabetes status, renal function. How frequently are they hospitalized for heart failure? And lastly, I do practice an ambulatory care full-time, so we can't forget insurance coverage. In HEFPEF patients with or without diabetes, I will definitely be considering SGLT2 inhibitors who, in patients who exhibit heart failure symptoms, NYHA class 2-3, especially in those that can't tolerate spironolactone or aldosterone antagonists due to CKD at baseline or a history of hyperkalemia, which can happen for these patients. In a HEFPEF patient who is on loop diuretic therapy already, perhaps I will try to maybe decrease the dose of a loop diuretic or even discontinue it in favor of an SGLT2 inhibitor, which may offer more cardiovascular and systemic benefits. In patients with cost barriers or insurance barriers, I will still likely be leaning towards our ARBs or aldosterone antagonists. And patients with HEFPEF are typically hypertensive anyway. So I would lean towards those agents in general for their blood pressure treatment. So specifically, patients with ejection fraction less than 60% who have elevated biomarkers 
and perhaps are suffering from frequent heart failure hospitalizations as well as NYHA class functional two to three symptoms, I think in general would be great candidates for SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. I will continue to be avoiding these drugs in patients with an EGFR of less than 20, patients who have a frequent history or who are at high risk for genitourinary infections, patients with a history of DKA. Um, we want to also avoid SGLT2 inhibitors during periods of acute illness, as that can also increase risk of DKA. Any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners? Some final thoughts I have really are just, I'm excited to see what comes next for this really historically undertreated patient population. I'm grateful to be in practice right now, providing direct patient care at this time where I can actually see these drugs in action. So there are a lot of clinical trials coming out soon that can be great content maybe for your future podcasts. Some of the trials I'm excited to see in this space, like we mentioned earlier, the preserved HF, which is the health-related uh, health status outcomes for HFPEP patients with dipagliflozin. Also, it will be dipagliflozin's trial for their HFPEP data with the DELIVER trial coming up. Paraglide, which will be interesting to see as a ARNI therapy in recently hospitalized HFPEP patients. Maybe we'll see a benefit there. Another one is STEP. HFPEF DM, which is semaglutide in HFPEF patients with diabetes. It'll be really interesting because we know that those drugs can cause a improvement in body weight and profound weight loss. Um, so a lot of great stuff coming to hopefully the benefit of HFPEF patients and more and more advancements, like I said, in um, cardiac diagnostics, therapies. I think just a lot of great things coming to the future. Well, Alex, thank you again so much for your time and, and for coming on CardioScript today. Thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.